0: plushcare.com slash hi everyone and welcome to dev raga personal finance episode 53 in this episode we will discuss in detail about bonds i've mentioned them in my previous episodes but it's worthwhile to look at how bonds are different to buying other types of investments such as stocks or cash deposits if you're new to this uh, podcast channel Um, The main premise of this is the pay yourself approach. So, in my view, there are five basic principles when it comes to personal finances. Number one, always pay yourself first. Save at least 20% of your after-tax income and put it away and invest it and reinvest the dividends. Those are the first three steps. Don't ever touch the money for 20, 30, 40, or hopefully even 50 years. Let the money grow and let compounding take its effect because dividends are getting reinvested into that investment and you're contributing to it every other month. And lastly, always automate the investments or the savings plans so you don't have to consciously think about it because if you remove the human error if you remove the fact that you may forget to invest and it just happens automatically via a BPAY serving system or if you just automate it in your net bank account, whichever net bank you may use, you're going to find that over time that you're going to be contributing consistently, you're going to be contributing over a long term and therefore your wealth will over time just compound and increase. And maybe just peek at your investments Yearly, don't pick too often, because you don't want to be changing your strategy for the long term, and ignore the noise of the markets. What that means is, yes, keep abreast of what's happening in the media, reading the newspaper and watching TV, but don't take it very seriously, okay? Because the way they sell newspapers and the way they sell advertisements on TV channels is by making it dramatic. So ignore the noise of the markets as much as you possibly can. If you did that, you're likely to end up with more wealth than you ever imagined possible. Now, money is just the tool. It doesn't bring you happiness, you know, for everyone. Evidence is, after about $75,000 income per year, earning huge amounts of money makes you happier, but not by much. It doesn't actually add significant amounts of happiness to your life. The happiness curve plateaus after about 75000 But... What money does is that it gives you options. It gives you the opportunity to better your life and your family's lives and all of those around you. You'll be in a much better position to help others and that's, you know, hopefully will provide you with some level of satisfaction in your life. Now, before we proceed on to the main topic of this podcast channel, remember, this is not personalized financial advice. I'm not a financial advisor, nor do I claim to be make sure you run your personal finances past a financial advisor or your accountant. Get the professionals in. They know what they're talking about. The aim of this podcast channel is to get you to understand some basic personal financial principles so that you're empowered with knowledge and personal finance, saving, budgeting, insurance, investing. It doesn't need to be difficult. Anyone can do it with a bit of research and simple rules to follow by. Now, Also, before we go on to the next main topic, which is bonds, I had a question recently about the 20% savings rule of after-tax income. What happens if you receive income before tax, that is, you receive the money in your bank account as gross payments, and you need to work out what your marginal tax rates are? So, for example, I know many doctors, tradespersons, and people who run sole trading businesses are in this exact same boat. How do you calculate your 20% of your after-tax income? Now, if you've been doing it for years and years, you might have a marginal tax rate already calculated. But certainly if you're in the early stages of your career, you may you know, not be able to calculate your marginal tax rate because your income actually just fluctuates significantly. I know for many medical professionals out there, it fluctuates from month to month, sometimes from day to day. It depends on how many patients, how many procedures, and it depends on what sort of procedures and what complexity of patients you might be seeing. So when I used to be in private practice, this was a major problem for me. My tax rate will be determined as I file my BAS statements, and eventually at the end of the year, I'll get an idea how much tax I need to pay. And because my income was highly variable, then my tax rate may differ from week by week. So you've got to be careful about managing your tax rates from week by week. It's better to manage it year by year because that gives you a bit of an idea of what your total income has been and what your marginal tax rate would be, which can dramatically fluctuate from year to year. So how do you handle this problem? This is what I used to do. I used to keep all of my earnings in my mortgage offset account, i.e. I used to save interest on the government's back. And then, when it came to paying taxes, I try and delay it as much as possible, legally, of course. You don't need to pay taxes, for example, for 2019 financial year until May 2020 when you're required to file your returns if you're using an accountant. And I use an accountant. Which means you have the added advantage of gross income sitting in your offset account, actively saving you interest. That's tax free return instantly. This is a huge saving, especially if you earn a significant income. But, it still doesn't easily allow you to calculate your after-tax income and then take that 20% of it to invest regularly. So I used a very simple but very aggressive formula and I warn you, this may not work for everyone, but it's worth discussing about and it's worth coming up with your own formula. What I used to do was I used to call it the 50% self-imposition tax rule, okay? I used to impose a 50% tax rule as a standard and put this money aside, still in my offset, and live off the other 50%, but out of that 50% that I'm still living off, I still try and take 20% of this to pay myself first. So the problem with this rule though is it's aggressive, which means I lived off 30% of my gross income, which is definitely doable if your income and expenses are low, sorry, if your income are quite high, but your expenses are quite low. With that 30%, I would manage all of my household expenses, including my mortgage okay so when tax time came invariably after deductions legal of course it would come to perhaps 30 or 35 percent i don't know i'm just making up a figure which automatically means i've now saved 15 to 20 percent in that self-imposed 50 percent tax this is on top of the 20 percent that i've already set aside out of the 50 percent that i have to play with in terms of expenses now you can come up with your own rules so just to reiterate that let's let's use an example okay if I had $1,000 of income per week, I would impose a 50% tax on that. I would take $500 of that money and put it away into the mortgage offset account. Okay, that's my tax money. And out of the remaining $500, I would take 20% of the $1,000. So that's another couple of hundred dollars and put it away and invest it because that's the pay myself money because that's my after-tax income then I've got 30% of my gross income to play with for all of my expenses. Then at the end of the year, supposing my tax rate was only 15%, then what I've already saved is my 20% of after-tax income, plus, because remember I've imposed a 50% um, you know, tax rate, if my tax rate was only 15%, then I've saved another 35% out of that 50% self-imposed tax rate. So now my savings rate becomes 35% plus 20% of what I've saved of my after-tax money. I hope I haven't confused anyone. Now, you can come up with your own rules. Rather than a self-imposed 50% tax, you could impose a 30 or 40% tax. But always overestimate your taxes rather than underestimate your taxes. This way, you won't get a nasty surprise at tax time. And you know the ATO have ways to give you nasty surprises all the time. Now, in all of this, what I learned in my private practice days was discipline is key. You can't make any of this work if you don't automate it or try to be meticulous with it, such that you don't lose track or focus on the end game. And the end game is 20, 30, 40 years away. Now, what happens is, as you do this, you get more and more knowledgeable, you get motivated, you work on diversification of income streams, you work on maximizing income per unit time, you find ways to earn passive income, and eventually, if you apply the 20% rule to each income stream, you will compound your savings and investments in record time. Having systems and processes in place such that you remove the mechanism of possible human errors, possible human intervention, and possible human bad behavior, i.e. spend excess money, is the key to financial success. So that's my two cents to that question out there. The person wishes to be anonymous, and that's completely fine. Uh, I respect their privacy. But that's a particular strategy that you could use, particularly if you're receiving income in gross format, where the employer is not taking out the tax and then paying you the after tax income. Now, if you're an employee and you just have an employee contract with the business, it's easier. The 20% after uh, uh, tax rule, sorry, uh, 20% uh, after income tax rule, after tax income savings rate is pretty easy to establish. If you're on a salaried wage, But if you're a private practice medical practitioner, if you run a business, you have a sole trading business where you have to calculate your tax return or estimate it and pay it prospectively or retrospectively, whatever your accountant says you need to do, you need to be a little bit smart about having that money set aside and using that as a savings rate as well. So let's get on to the main topic of today, which is bonds. What is a bond and what are its components, pros and cons and risks associated with it? Now, basically, a fancy way of saying what a bond is, it's a fixed income instrument. So traditionally, individuals go to banks and ask to borrow money. The bank assesses the individual finances and then issues a loan, which has a term, and monthly repayments are then calculated, of which some component is the interest payments. You have an interest payment plus a principal payment built into the monthly repayments. That's how traditional loans work. Essentially, bonds are exactly the same, except individuals are the people with the money to lend, i.e. the individual becomes a creditor, not the bank, and they do it to governments, federal, state or local, or corporations that are trying to raise money for various projects. Now, they agree to pay you interest at various intervals, that is the government, local, federal or county, whatever it is, or the corporation, they agreed to pay you, the individual, the creditor, interest at various intervals and have a term on the bond and at the end of the term, repay your principal directly to you. But bonds are not risk-free, not all bonds are safe, and therefore you need to interrogate and analyse what's on offer. Now, this is no different to buying shares or stocks. You won't willy-nilly buy any random stock or any random index fund. You need to do your research. You will analyse the numbers before doing so. And bonds are exactly the same. You need to do your research. So I guess the question is, why would governments or corporations want to raise money using bonds? Well, governments have projects which they need for. They need money for those projects. Taxation pays for those projects, and taxation pays for a lot of the services that you and I take for granted that are supplied by the government. But they may need extra money. Governments can run out of money too but may want not to use their own money to fund these projects. They might want to raise it via bonds. They can tap into the individuals who have money to lend them. So the government can tap you and say, hey, listener, you have $100,000. I want to borrow that $100,000 for my project, and I will pay you an interest rate, and I'll pay you back the bond after X amount of years. These are called government bonds, okay? Similarly, corporations want to invest in new projects or grow their business. Now, they have a few options. They can either borrow money from a bank for small amounts, but for large amounts, it's hard, as banks usually ask a billion questions before lending you money, which usually means higher interest rates, or they can either raise capital from issuing of stocks. They can go to stockholders and say, I want to give away more pieces of our business, please buy some shares in my company, but that means they're giving away equity, okay, they're giving away a part of their business in the form of stocks, the shareholders, remember, own pieces of companies. Now, businesses uh, may not want to forego some equity to achieve this, okay, they don't want to do that, and they don't want to go to a bank and borrow money either, so if they don't want to do either of these things, they can issue bonds to individual investors, Okay, so essentially bonds are individual units of debt issued by companies or governments, but they can also be traded to other people if the individual investor wants to sell the bonds they have. So bonds are essentially also securitized as tradable assets. Bear with me here. I'm going to go into a little bit more detail about bonds. And hopefully by the end of this episode, this all kind of makes sense. Okay, so if bonds are basically, you know, things that governments and corporations issue to individuals where individuals can lend them out money and get some interest payments on it. Let's have a look at the components of a bond. Okay, number one, the bond always has a face value. This is the amount of money the bond will be worth at maturity date. So if the government gives you a bond that's worth $1,000, they're going to say they're going to pay that money back at the maturity date. and That could be 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years, whatever it is the term dates are. Number two, a bond always has a coupon rate. This is the interest rate the bond issuer will pay on the face value on an annual basis. So for example, if a bond is issued $1,000 face value, they might have a coupon rate of 5% per annum. So that means every year, $50 it paid in interest rate to the actual holder of the bond, which is the creditor that's lending the money. Number three, the coupon dates. These are the dates in which the issuer will pay the interest. So you can have monthly coupon dates, you can have six monthly coupon dates, you can have 12 monthly coupon dates, etc. It depends on the type of bond that's being issued and it depends on the actual issuer. Why is it called coupons? I actually looked into this. I think historically back in the day, literally um, they had a pad with coupons on them which you take and cash in and that'll be your interest payments. Of course, nowadays things are electronic. Number four, The maturity date. This is the date at which the bond will mature and the issuer will pay back the investor the bond face value. So if the bond is worth $1,000 with a coupon rate of 5% per annum and the coupon dates are every year and the maturity date might be 10 years later, after 10 years, the corporation or the government that's issued you the bond will pay you back the $1,000 which is the face value. Okay? And lastly, the term of the bond. This is a length of time The issuer issues the bond. So in this particular example that I just used, it's 10 years. That's the term of the bond. So let's put all of this together using an example, using my beloved lemon stand business example. Now, if you've been following my podcast, the lemon stand business comes up every now and again, and I try and compartmentalize the concepts as as sort of simplified as possible using a simple lemon stand business. So you own a lemon stand business and you want to expand the business. Your customers are growing, and you need to buy new machinery to handle the customer load. You approach your parents and explain you're requiring $1,000 to invest in the business because you've got wealthy parents, but rather than go to the bank or issue stock in your company because you don't want to give up any equity in the business, you want to issue a bond to your parents, okay? You want to tap into their wealth because you've seen their savings, they've got thousands of dollars in the bank account, and you want to tap into their wealth and you want to issue a bond, Okay? The bond is this. The bond is in return for a $1,000 face value. You will pay yearly coupon rates of 5% and you will pay it on the coupon dates, which is the first of every year. And the term of the bond is 10 years and the maturity date will happen on the 1st of January, 2029. Okay, this means every year you pay a coupon rate of $50 to your parents and at the end of the 10 years, you pay the original $1,000 back to them. This is if they hold the bond for that time. Remember, they may need the money sooner, so they may trade your bond on the open market. But we'll get to that later in this episode. In other words, if you went to a bank and you borrowed money, then that loan, that's a contractual obligation on your part to pay back the bank a particular interest rate per year. That is not tradable. It's not a tradable security but bonds are actually tradable securities your parents that you've just you know issued a $1000 bond to they can take that bond and trade it away if the bond value increases or if they run into some financial difficulty and they need some money they can see what the bond market will pay that particular bond okay we'll get to that in a moment because that's got a relationship to bond price and duration etc cetera, etc cetera. so in which case Out of the components, what then determines the coupon rate? Well, ultimately, it's the coupon rate which determines whether a bond is worth the investment, right? Because if a bond has a really bad coupon rate, that is 1% or 2%, which is well below inflation, why would anyone invest in a bond? So the higher the coupon rate, one would assume the more attractive the bond becomes in relation to what's happening in the economy. And I'll try and link it up to the economy because that's a really relevant point. So there are two main features of the bond which determine the coupon rate, okay? Number one, the credit quality. That is, what are the chances the issuer of the bond has had bad credit rating affecting their ability to pay back the coupon rate and also the face value of the bond? In other words. Using a lemon stand business, if your lemon stand business is a very bad credit quality rating, then you're issuing the bond to your parents. your parents might be like, "Well, hang on, why would I buy that bond um, because it's a really really you know bad sort of credit quality rating. well, you might want to buy it, your parents might want to buy it because it offers a really high coupon rate, okay, so the credit quality affects the coupon rate so if they have a very poor Credit quality the risk of default on that bond is higher so if your lemon stand business has a very poor credit quality your risk of defaulting on the bond that you've just issued to your parents is significantly higher this means if you have a bad credit rating you are likely to offer a higher coupon rate to your parents so that they will actually be attracted enough to be actually you know issue uh you know buy your bond off you that is give them you know give you the thousand dollars if that makes any sense the second thing the second main feature of the bond which determines the coupon rate is the time to maturity that is if the time to maturity is long then the risk is greater because it means the individual investor that is your parents who buys the bond off you is exposed to market fluctuations and in inflation and interest rate changes so generally speaking the longer the maturity date in the future The more coupon rates the bonds will pay, the higher the coupon rate. And herein lies the critical factor. If you've been listening to the news, and I hope you've been paying attention, because like I said, pay attention to the news, but ignore the noise, you would have heard about this concept called the inverted yield curve, the Americans are freaking out over it, some Australians are freaking freaking out over it, people in Europe are freaking out over it, because they think it's a predictor of an upcoming recession, okay? So, if the time to maturity is long, then the risk is really high, and therefore the coupon rate should be high, right? So, what the inverted yield curve says is that it's the inverse of that. That is the yield curve invert. So what does that mean? That means that if you have a bond that is for 10, 20 long-term bonds, so 10, 20 years, for example, the yield on that is actually less than the yield that you will get if you went for a shorter term. So think about it. If you want to invest in a bond and you're taking a long-term view, which means your money is kind of locked up for that period of time, you would want a high higher coupon rate but currently people are freaking out because they feel that the longer you invest particularly for the u.s treasury bond situation the less money you come out on top therein lies the problem so why is that a problem because statistically over the last seven recessions in the united states if the uh, yield curve inverts it's almost 100% predictor rate of an upcoming recession within 22 to 24 months. That is why people are freaking out, okay? I hope that clarifies things. So there are two main features of the bond which determine the coupon rate. Feature one is a credit quality and feature two is a time to maturity, okay? So who determines the credit quality of a bond or a credit rating of a bond issuer? So who determines that the lemon sand business that you run is actually a good business? that you're able to you know issue bonds and you'll have a great credit rating. Well, there are plenty of ratings agencies around, but in Australia the main ones are Moody's and Standard and Poor's, hence the S&P, that's where the S&P comes from, and Fitch, okay? The jobs of these ratings agencies is to assess the quality of certain investments. You may have heard of ratings such as AAA, AA, A a or B etc the more AAA's the better this is done by the ratings agencies the governments get similar ratings when it comes to economies for example so australia for example boasts a AAA rating by standard and poor's and we are one of only a few countries in the world to have a AAA rating for all three major ratings agencies Now, if you reflect back onto what happened at the last GFC australia was very worried because they were worried that as an economy and as a country these ratings agencies will analyse us and go, hmm, AAA rating's going to be gone, and therefore that's a bit of a red flag for businesses and investors and corporations that want to come into the country and spend money because they want a stable economic environment. So the better the rating is, the more likely a business is going to come in and invest in that environment. And that's why AAA ratings are very, very important for economies, for countries, for businesses, etc. Okay? So just remember... Um, You need to take also the rating system with a grain of salt. Again, look what happened in the 2008-9 GFC, when credit rating agencies were basically randomly giving out investment banks, AAA ratings like Lehman Brothers, etc., and some investments like subprime mortgages, AAA ratings as well, and then only to realise they weren't worthy of high ratings, leading to perhaps one of the greatest deceptions on investors ever. Investors look at these ratings to make their investment decisions, but you need to analyze the validity of these ratings. So just because a particular rating agency gives a particular rating for an investment bond, that doesn't mean that's actually true. Now again, you know you have to do your due diligence, you have to do your research. So in other words, let's use an analogy. If you did an exam and you scored really well in the exam. Let's say you did a VCE exam and you'd scored really well in the exam. Well, there has to be an independent agency outside of VCE that sort of looks at these exams and go, well, they're actually of high quality and of durable standards. If the exam is actually quite easy and everyone does really well, then what's the point of having an exam? What's the point of having a rating for that exam as a triple A? That's a bit of an analogy for you. Hope that makes sense. Now, there are other two other variables to consider when investing in bonds. Okay. In our Lemon Stand example, for example, we said the parents may choose to sell off the bond to other investors at a profit or loss depending on their own personal situation. They don't have to hang on to the bond for the term date, which is 10 years away from today. Which means the bond prices must be able to fluctuate. So the bond prices will change based on the interest rates. That is, the correlation is inverse. So... When the interest rates, that is when the RBA, the Reserve Bank of Australia, rises interest rates, the bond prices tend to fall and vice versa. If you get one thing out of this, get this out of this podcast episode, that is bond prices are inversely related to interest rates set by the Reserve Bank of Australia. This is also true in America and other countries that have this sort of similar system. Okay. So why is that important? So the concept then becomes of something called duration. So the concept of duration is important. okay? And duration has nothing to do with maturity date or the duration or the term of the bond. okay? That's that's how long the bond is actually valid for. It's got nothing to do with that. A duration just means how much a bond price will rise or fall with the change in interest rates. In other words, the duration of a bond measures the sensitivity of the bond price in relation to the interest rate. Okay? So as a general rule, if the interest rates fall by percent, then bond prices rise by percent. So if a bond has a duration of five years, then the bond's price will rise by five percent during that time, given a specific interest rate fluctuation. It's a very simplistic view of looking at it, but that's probably how much detail I'm gonna go into it. I don't want to confuse everyone. Okay? So if duration then is how sensitive a bond's price is in relation to interest rates, then the other concept to grasp is convexity. Now we're totally going into geek mode here, so let me just keep this very, very simple. Convexity just implies the rate of duration, that is the rate of sensitivity of change of a bond's price in relation to interest rates okay? Now, if you really want to get into this, you can actually Google convexity as a concept. Have a look at the graph. There's actually a graph associated with the concept of convexity, but I'm not going to go into any more detail. So, in other words, credit rating, okay, and the coupon rates, and that all sort of affects whether you want to invest in a bond or not. And also, the other two things is the duration of a bond and the convexity of a bond will also, you know, make a difference as to whether you want to invest in that bond or not, okay? Which means, Coming back to the coupon rate, can it actually change? Well, bonds can have fixed coupon rates or a flexible coupon rate. So the answer is yes, the interest rates or the coupon rates can change. Fixed rate bonds are when coupon rates are fixed at the bond issuing and stays the same until maturity. So in the Lemon stand example, if you issue a coupon rate of 5% for the bond of $1,000 and you say that's fixed, well, that is fixed for the term of that bond. In this particular case, it's 10 years. So the investor pockets the coupon rate until the maturity date. There are other types of coupon rates. There are called floating rate bonds. This is when the coupon rate varies in line with movements of the benchmark interest rates. Now the benchmark interest rate, which is different to the Reserve Bank interest rates, go up then the coupon rates also go up. So you can check the prospectus of the bond to see how this will be calculated and what benchmark interest rates are used. There are various different types of benchmark interest rates. But sometimes, There are no coupon rates to a bond. You're like, well, why would I buy a bond if there's no coupon rates? Well, what happens is the issuer will sell the bond at a discount initially and then promise to pay the face value back at the end of the term. So let's use an example. Supposing a bond may be valued at $1,000. So you want to issue a bond and its value is $1,000 to your parents, but you want to sell it to your parents at $900. And the term might be just one year this time rather than 10 years which means the effective coupon rate or return is 10% interest on the original investment, if that makes any sense, okay? So, they're called no-coupon bonds. So, again, it, it kind of all leads to, a, leads to a, one concept, and that is you want to be investing for the long term. You want to end up having more money at the end of that long term than you started off with, and you want to be able to beat inflation. Those are the three things in investing, right? So, How are bonds priced then? So what determines a bond pricing of $1,000? So far, we've talked about bonds as if investors hold the bonds until maturity date. But this is not required. Let's get back to the lemon stand business, right? You've issued a $1,000 bond with a term of 10 years at a coupon rate of 5% equating to $50 a year. And you've issued it to your parents. Suppose the economy takes for a worse turn, and all of a sudden, the Reserve Bank drops the interest rates to provide some economic stimulus, right, to 2.5%. So the Reserve Bank has said, oh, look, the economy is tumbling, so we need to drop the interest rate, so we need to stimulate the economy because we need to encourage people to borrow more money so they can invest in businesses, grow their businesses, create employment, spend more money, etc., etc." Now, your parents are still holding your bond, which pays 5% interest rate. So now the Reserve Bank of Australia has now decreased their interest rates, let's assume, to 2.5%. These are not real figures, guys. I'm just making up figures to highlight a specific point here. Okay, so let's see what happens. New investors with disposable income are looking at the current situation of 2.5 Reserve Bank interest rates and saying this means new bond coupon rates are going to be similar. In other words, if I'm a new investor, I'm looking at the bond market and going interest rates are going down, so the new bonds that I might purchase, of course, they might be affected by this interest rate. So I'm not really that attracted. In the eyes of the new investors then, the bond held by your parents is now becoming more attractive due to its higher coupon rate, okay? Because remember, the coupon rate is 5%. This means the investors may knock on your parents' door if your parents want to sell the bond and say, look, I want to buy that bond off you, parents. This means your parents can sell that bond at a higher rate that is as interest rates have dropped in the eyes of the new investors your parents bond is now looking more valuable that is the price of the bond is starting to look more valuable it's going to go up due to the higher interest rate they were able to secure or coupon rate they're able to secure you see how that works when the reserve bank decreases the interest rates see how the bond prices go up that's the inverse relationship that you need to be aware of So how much can your parents get for their bond? So your parents are now in the market, they want to sell their bond. Well, investors may say to get the same $50 of coupon payment per year, they now need to bid up the price of your parents' bond to $2,000 rather than the original face value of $1,000 such that they get the same $50 in income. Why would your parents sell the bond for anything less than this? So they bought it for $1,000, Okay, they bought the bond for $1,000. They've got a coupon rate of 5% with a term date of 10 years into the future. Now, the economy's taken a tumble and interest rates have dived, which means investors are looking for safer investments, and your parents' yield is actually quite high. The investors might say, Well, I want that $50 per year. They're going to push up the price of the bond. And unless your parents sell it, they can't buy it. So why would your parents sell the bond for the same $1,000 that they bought? They want a higher price, right? They'd be mad to do that because currently they're getting $50 per year from their bond. So currently they're getting a yield of 5%. So they want to push up the bond price so that they can sell the bond at a profit and call it a day. All right? Likewise, if the economy did well and the interest rates rose to 10%, for example, by the Reserve Bank, it would be an absolute catastrophe in Australia if that happened, but let's just assume. Then why would anyone buy the bond from your parents? Because which only has a coupon rate of five percent. New investors could easily, you know, buy new bonds with coupon rates of ten percent potentially. This means to get the same fifty dollar income per year investors may only be willing to pay $500 given the prevailing interest rate situation. So this is how interest rates fluctuations can affect bond prices. And let's face it, when the interest rates go up, when the economy is doing well, guess what people do? They take the money out of bonds and they go and invest in stock markets and real estate. Okay. So the pricing of bonds, though, is dependent on the current economic climate and the current interest rate situation. That is the key that you need to take away from this podcast. So over time... The fixed-rate coupons may become more or less attractive, which affects the bonds price based on the economy and the interest rate scenario. Now, add to this another complexity. In a bad economy, your lemon stand business may not be making much money. This means your ability to pay back the coupon rate to your parents may be hampered. This means your parents are getting nervous. Ratings agencies have downgraded your business from AAA to B, which means all of a sudden, even though interest rates have dropped in the economic market and bond prices may increase for other bonds, if your company credit rating is bad because of the bad economy and because your company is not doing too well, then your bond price may not actually rise in congruence with the decrease in interest rates okay so all of a sudden your parents are nervous because they have potentially a junk bond in their portfolio if they try and get rid of it they may not get what they paid for it and that's how bond prices fluctuate i hope that it's a little bit more clearer for you okay so when you're investing in bonds you want to be investing in safer type of bonds right So, what are the safer type of bonds that you can invest on? Generally speaking, buying a bond from a federal government is considered safer, okay? And generally speaking, bonds are safer than stocks, and this is why many retirees choose to focus on bonds in their investment rather than dabble their portfolio 100% in stocks because stocks are volatile. We've talked about volatility, we've talked about risk in my previous episodes, and if you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to it. it. Makes a bit more sense. So, why are government bonds safe? Okay, let's face it. If the government even ran the risk of running out of money, which they potentially could, guess what they can do? They can just print more money. But of course, this raises inflation, which comes with its own set of risks, etc, etc. But the ultimate point is, if the government ran out of money, they can print more money okay, which means inflation goes up. Now, check out out my episode on inflation and episode 27 if you haven't listened to it because, you know, it really does affect your personal finances and your investing. If you don't understand inflation, um, then I think you, uh, you know, you have a significant gap in your knowledge. So, you need to go back and listen to that or maybe do some research on the internet about it. So, that's basically about bonds now there are you know how can you invest in bonds you can buy direct bonds if you want to but you know if you're a little bit more conservative and a bit more safer there are um, ETFs for bonds there are index funds for bonds so if you check out Vanguard website for example you can actually invest in a bond index if you're unsure which bonds to buy um, you know you can just invest in an index uh, which just makes it a lot easier in fact you can diversify into any one of their diversified funds which has a combination of cash Australian shares, international shares, bonds, emerging markets, small companies fund, etc, etc. So what do I think of bonds? Okay, again, I'm not a financial advisor, but this is my two cents, if that makes any sense, okay? Bonds are very good for conservative investors or older investors who are worried about market fluctuations, okay? I don't invest in bonds yet. I'm relatively young, Um, can weather market fluctuations, and happy to take some risk in my stock market portfolio. Having said that, I dollar cost average, okay? That way I reduce my volatility risk and I reduce my risk as well, which means I invest regularly, I take advantage of volatility, I diversify by investing in index funds, and therefore I try and minimize that risk as much as possible, okay? So, That's pretty much it for bonds. It's been a relatively big episode, probably the biggest episode I've done, so hopefully it makes a lot of sense for you. Before I finish up, let's summarise this episode. What are bonds? They're fixed income debt instruments. The components are face value, how much it's worth at the maturity date, the term and maturity date, coupon rate, and coupon dates. What are the terms of the quality of the bond? Well, there are credit rate agencies, such as Moody's and Fitch and S&P, that go and assess all sorts of things. They assess companies, they assess governments, they assess economies, they assess bonds as well, and they give a rating. Okay, So the better the rating, which means it's a AAA rating, the more secure the bonded. And generally speaking, federal government bonds are very, very secure because the federal government has loads of money, it has your money, it has my money in the form of taxation, they can also print more money if it really wanted to. What is duration and convexity? A bit of geeky concepts here. Go up and read about it, learn about it. And how does bond pricing work in relation to interest rates? Basically, if interest rates dive, the bond prices can potentially go up. And what are the coupon rates? Fixed versus floating versus sometimes no coupon bonds are offered. They're called zero coupon bonds. Traditionally, people talk about fixed coupon rates when it comes to bonds. And lastly, what's the safety of bonds for the investor? You can invest in bond ETFs, um, or you can invest in bond index funds if you want to, or if you want to be absolutely conservative, you just invest in a diversified portfolio, which has stocks, bonds, and everything in it. Okay, that's episode 53. Sorry, it's been a really monster episode, almost 40 minutes. I'll try and wrap it up as quickly as possible. Thanks very much for listening. Remember, I'm not a financial advisor, so go ahead and speak to your accountant or your own financial advisor. The whole point of this podcast channel is to help teach you basic principles of personal finance and try and put in some geeky economic concepts there so that you can understand and how that relates to your personal finance as well. Okay, thank you very much for the questions on Facebook, on Whirlpool, and also on CastBox. Keeps the comments coming in. I really enjoy them. I'll try to answer each and every one of them when I have time. if you have family or friends interested in learning basic personal finance concepts refer them to this channel it's free why not just use your drive time your exercise time whatever you do in your private life to learn something which can potentially improve your life okay you put so much time and effort into your career into your life i think you should put that little bit of effort into your personal finances to reap the rewards because let's face it we all work very very hard for our money like always, pay yourself first, invest consistently, reinvest dividends and always, always automate it and do it for the long term. Until next time, stay safe and perhaps think about bonds next time you're investing. Thank you. This is Dev Rager, Personal Finance, episode 53, signing off.